It is Thursday, 21st of October. The year is 1971. A mother is preparing her young children to take a shopping trip. She doesn't realise it yet, but she's intending to visit a shopping centre where a massive gas leak is currently underway. Gas has been filling the basement of the shop all week and the staff and local residents have only just become aware of the seriousness of this problem. They have called the gas board in the hope that the leak can be plugged quickly, but the area has not been evacuated. It is business as usual. As the gas leaks, the clock is ticking. Unaware of the danger awaiting them, the mother straps her children into the car climbs into the driver's seat and turns the ignition key. Welcome to Respond. Here's your host, Stuart Gray. Hey there, how are you? Welcome to the final episode, the big finale of season one. You know, over these last nine episodes, I've worked to unpack some of the reasons why the Christian worldview makes sense. Now, this might be surprising to some people because it's often assumed that Christianity is understood as just being a feelings-based thing, not a rational position at all. But in this podcast, I've explored some important arguments that begin to show that this caricature simply misses the point. Christian belief must affect a person's feelings, sure. But first, it is also rationally grounded. Now, this week's discussion is a vital one because it's about a foundational aspect to Christian belief. Yet for many, this subject is simply a deal breaker. Miracles. Now, many people may ask, how can anyone really believe in the 21st century that miracles occur and are real. Surely this idea should be left in the imaginations of primitive human societies. Well, I'm going to show that 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 assumption is simply mistaken. I'm going to share some amazing contemporary miracle stories from my life and from the lives of other people. And, uh, you know, if you want to hear more about that mother heading with her kids into that dangerous gas leak, then stay tuned. We're also going to interact with Dr. Craig S. Keener. Now, Dr. Keener is the FM and Ada Thompson Professor of Biblical Studies at Asbury Theological Seminary in the US. He earned his PhD at Duke University in 1991, and his expertise is in the New Testament, the historical Jesus, ethical reconciliation, and miracles. In fact, for years of his life, Dr. Keener has researched contemporary as well as ancient miracle claims. He's personally interviewed hundreds of eyewitnesses of miraculous events, many of them physical healings and raisings from the dead, and he's gathered expert corroborative testimony about them from many physicians. That's where we're heading to. But to start, you might well ask, what are we talking about when we are talking about miracles? Now, I'm British, so I live in a a pretty changeable climate. 
great sunny weather can suddenly transform into a downpour of rain. So if the sun shines on you throughout your picnic, you might say, it was a miracle that it didn't rain on us today. That's kind of how we use the word miracle today. We, we refer to fortunate occurrences as miracles. But that's not what this podcast is about. I'm talking about something quite different. You know, St. Augustine was an influential Christian from the 4th century. I've spoken about him before. He describes miracles like this. They are not contrary to nature, only contrary to our knowledge of nature. They are possible because of the hidden potentialities placed in nature by God. And Augustine said that miracles happen to get people's attention. If you've cast your eye over the New Testament, then you'll know that it is full of miracle claims. For example, around half of Mark's gospel is concerned with the miraculous. Let's switch from the Bible to just thinking about Western culture for a minute. You know, the Enlightenment in the late 17th century caused human reason to be elevated above other sources of authority. And as a result, some later 19th century theologians tried to do away with the Bible's miracle claims. Now, I get that people are sceptical about the Bible's miracle claims and also sceptical about any contemporary miracle claims that get made. Our minds immediately reach for some sort of rational explanation, don't they? My mind does the same, and I think this level of healthy scepticism is good. You shouldn't believe everything you hear. That would just be gullible and pretty dumb. But when unique events in history are well evidenced, they should not be dismissed simply because they describe miraculous occurrences. Yet often this is exactly what people do. They'll say something like, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. The problem is, the sceptic doesn't tend to be specific about what they mean by extraordinary evidence. And so when the believer presents evidence for the event in question, say the resurrection of Jesus, the sceptic just replies, sorry, that's not enough evidence, I need more. The sceptic raises the bar on the believer, preventing the top of the bar from being reached. Now, do you see the problem with this sceptical approach? The sceptic has decided that miracles do not occur before they even utter the statement, extraordinary claims, require extraordinary evidence. The sceptic isn't interested in exploring well-evidenced miracles. The sceptic's only looking for new ways to reject them. Now, what's interesting is we don't do this to other unique events that happen in history. Unique things happen all the time. For example, the first time a man ran the four-minute mile. We don't reject the possibility of these unique events before we look at the evidence that they happened. So why do we do this for the claims of Christianity? Perhaps what we need as evidence for miracles is not actually extraordinary evidence, but simply sufficient evidence. Evidence that is sufficiently able to show that the natural explanations of the event aren't able to adequately account for the event. For example, 
In the case of Jesus' supernatural resurrection from the dead, we have many important lines of evidence that make it unreasonable to assume that Jesus did not rise from the dead. For example, the eyewitness reports of Jesus' death and burial, the empty tomb, his bodily appearances and the birth of the Christian church. What's more, eyewitnesses of his resurrection went to their deaths proclaiming that it happened. So if Jesus' resurrection did not happen, we need a rock-solid explanation for why all of this additional evidence exists. But to date, I've not read a convincing explanation that did not conclude that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. If you can explain this a different way to me, then please let me know. I'm interested. You know, the reason why so many sceptics are unwilling to consider that miracles can occur is partly due to the work of a a 19th century Scottish philosopher. His name was David Hume. I want to introduce Dr Craig Keener at this point and, and let him talk a little bit about Hume's ideas. Most of the, the deniers, uh, Boltmann and, and Strauss and others, ultimately depended on arguments set forth by David Hume. Now, David Hume was actually condensing uh, arguments by deists, the, the more radical deists. But Hume said that there's no genuinely credible eyewitnesses for miracles, and therefore, um, Anybody who claims to be an eyewitness doesn't really count because we know miracles, there's no reason to believe in miracles because we have no genuinely credible eyewitnesses for them. So if anybody claims to be an eyewitness, well, they're excluded because we have no reason to believe in miracles. It's entirely circular argument. Now I'm really super simplifying his, his arguments here for the sake of time. But he said that miracles violate natural law but his understanding of miracles as violations of natural law differ from what any theist, how any theist ever defined miracles. I mean, Exodus 14 says that God sent a strong east wind to blow back the, the, the sea. How is that a violation of nature? Rather, it's a, it's a use of nature. Further, his his prescriptive view of natural law differs from today's conceptions of natural law, and it also differed from conceptions in his own day in that Newton and the early Newtonians believed in miracles because they believed that the miracles were, you know, God as the lawgiver had the authority over the laws. He wasn't bound by them. Hume is arguing that because miracles violate natural law, we must reject them as a possibility. But this idea has got many problems. First of all, the founders of science, like Isaac Newton, realised that laws, such as gravity, weren't prescriptive, they were descriptive. In other words, the scientific laws don't determine what must occur in nature, they simply describe what we normally observe in nature. Think of it this way, Natural laws aren't a straitjacket to God. In the Old Testament, it talks about a time when Moses is leading the Israelites out of Egypt and they become blocked by the Red Sea. And unfortunately, they're being pursued by the Egyptian army who intends their harm. But God miraculously makes a way for them to cross the Red Sea by parting the water 
so they can cross over on the seabed. The way the text describes this surprising event is like this. Then Moses raised his hand over the sea and the Lord opened up a path through the water with a strong east wind. That's very different to the old Cecil B. DeMille Hollywood view of the crossing of the Red Sea. Because what's happening here is that natural processes are being used at just the right time and at just the right place, the strong east wind, to allow the nation of Israel to escape their pursuers. This is one type of miracle. But there are other times where God seems to redirect natural events so that the outcome is different. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus' disciples are in a boat in a storm. And the text says this. He, that's Jesus, saw that they were in trouble. At about three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came towards them walking on the water. Now, this sounds pretty unusual, right? In nature, there are some species of insect that can skate on top of water. But human beings are very different. You know, think about the physics and chemistry of this situation. The surface tension created by the water molecules cannot bear the weight of a human body in the same way that it can support those particular species of insect. Natural law dictates that when we jump towards the surface of a large body of water, we don't land on the surface. Rather, we are submerged within the water. Yet on the occasion in Mark chapter 6, we read that the normal flow of natural events are suspended and Jesus walks on the surface of the water. You know, given that miracles can be an example of natural law being used or intentionally suspended by God, what does that lead us to conclude? Well, surely it is therefore a mistake to say, well, in my experience, miracles don't occur, so miracles are impossible. No, hang on. That's just the wrong way to look at it. Normal experience shows what nature usually does when God isn't doing miracles. Nature does not prevent the miraculous. Rather, it shows us when a supernatural event takes place. Well, his second argument, which is kind of the basis for his first argument, is that experience shows no miracles. Uniform human experience leads us to never expect that anything is really a miracle. So if you've got well-supported claims for miracles, they, they have to be rejected. Now, how many of you have heard of Blaise Pascal? If, if you hadn't heard of Pascal, he's kind of the, often considered the father of the modern computer. How many of you have heard of computers? <laughs> um, well, Pascal w was a man of, of faith. His niece had a running eyesore that emitted a foul odor. Uh, seems to have been clearly organic. It, people around, they could smell it. She'd had it for some time. But she was at a Jansenist monastery when she was touched with the holy thorn from Jesus' crown of thorns. Now, personally, I don't think it was really a, a thorn from Jesus' crown of thorns. I think Luther was probably right when he said that there were enough nails left over from the Holy Cross to shoe every horse in Saxony. But, you know, relics were, were very popular at this time. But it was a contact point for her faith. And, and when she was touched with this 
holy thorns, supposedly from Jesus' crown of thorns. She was instantly and publicly healed in the sight of many witnesses. And the Queen Mother of France sent her own physician to check it out, so this was well verified. And Hume points to this. He says, look, this is better verified than any miracle that we have in, in the Bible, for example. I mean, it's medically documented, uh, it's clearly organic, and so on. But we know this didn't happen, so why would we believe anything else? And then he moves on from there. That's his whole argument. Why? Because he could get away with that. There have been a, no a number of major philosophic challenges to Hume, published by Cambridge and Oxford and Cornell and elsewhere. Uh, the one published by Oxford was by um, someone he titled his book, Hume's Abject Failure, his argument regarding miracles. Someone criticized that book and said, you just, you just told this view because you're a Christian. That's why you don't like his argument about miracles. To which the author responded, actually, I'm not a Christian. I just thought it was a bad philosophic argument. I thought Keener's example of Pascal's niece sounded really familiar. People saying, oh, it wasn't a miracle because miracles don't happen. They can't happen, so it can't have been a miracle. The problem here is that when we say that, we're actually arguing in a circle. When we assert that miracles don't happen, we can only be telling the truth if we already know that all the miracle claims that have ever been made are false. Do we know that? How could anyone have that level of knowledge? It's absurd to even suggest it. So what's actually happening is that we're arguing in a circle. In logic terms, we're engaged in the informal fallacy of begging the question. And this means we're starting with the premise that miracles don't occur, and we therefore conclude that miracles cannot occur. This is a failure in thinking. It is invalid, and the conclusion does not logically follow. So what we've learned is that the philosophical foundation for our modern scepticism against miracles is logically unsound. But someone might ask, well, should we just believe every and any old miracle claim? Why should we believe the miracle claims made by Christian believers like you, Stuart? Well, if there is a God and Christianity is true, why would he do miracles in this world? Here's Dr. Keener again. Uh, before I go on, I did make some caveats. First of all, I'm not limiting divine action to dramatic miracles. If God answers our prayer through medical means, we thank God for that. It's still God's blessing, just like the parting of the sea. God may have done it through a strong east wind, but <laughs> it happened in a very timely way. From a theistic perspective, natural or medical healing are also God's gifts. You can't get much more miraculous, I think, than the information content in DNA. But the focus here is on extraordinary healings or other kinds of miracles, uh, or the way Augustine defined them. These were things that got people's attention. They, they, they brought awe of God, because um, people get used to the other things that happen, what we call naturally. Dramatic miracles today most often appear in the same settings that you have in the, in the Bible, like groundbreaking evangelism, which we increasingly may need in the West as well. But God may answer prayer anywhere, but special signs that really get people's attention most often are reported during evangelism in largely unevangelized regions. Those signs, by the way, if you look at Acts and the Gospels, those signs 
get people's attention. They don't convert people. So it's the gospel that converts people. The signs get people's attention, which can either mean they, they become more open to the gospel or they persecute you more. So it's not, not always a favorable uh, response. Keener's saying that God does miracles to get people's attention. We see this played out in the New Testament accounts, and we also see examples of this in other settings around the world throughout human history. More recently, Dr. Keener presents examples of the growth of the Christian church and the persecution of Christians in countries like China. These things have been catalyzed by the occurrence of miracles. God would do miracles because he wants you and I to take notice of him and to become Christians. We're going to talk about some very specific miracles in just a moment. But you might be thinking, how do I know this is true? And frankly, what about all the fake miracles out there? The doctored YouTube videos, the downright lies that people propagate. Don't the fake miracles cast doubt on the idea that miracles happen at all? Well, think of it this way. Does real money exist? Yeah, of course. You went to Starbucks and bought a cappuccino this morning and you paid for it with money. Okay, does counterfeit money exist? Well, yes, it does. In fact, in fact, I was once given a counterfeit note in change from a coffee shop. It wasn't Starbucks, by the way. So let me ask you this. Just because counterfeit money exists, is that a reason for us to think that real money does not exist? course not. In the same way, just because counterfeit miracles exist, this is no reason to believe true miracles do not exist. In the end, I just don't think we've got good, sound, sceptical arguments that dismiss the possibility that miracles could occur. And as I've been saying during these podcasts, there are really good reasons to think that God does in fact exist. And if that's the case, doesn't it raise the likelihood of miracles in the world? Miracles are possible. Doesn't God's existence make them highly likely? If he's really there and really loves people, wouldn't it be likely that he would act in the world in surprising ways for people's good? I've been arguing that miracles are possible in the world, but have they actually occurred? Well, here's my first example. If you pull up a web browser and you Google the words Clarkston gas explosion, then the images that are going to pop up on your screen are basically of carnage. The result of the largest peacetime explosion in Scottish history since the Second World War. Here's the thing. I should have been at the centre of that carnage. Why? because I was one of the two children that that mother was strapping into the back of the car on Thursday, 21st October, 1971. You see, that morning, my dad took the train to work, leaving the, the new family car at home with my mum. And her plan was to visit Clarkston Toll shops to run some errands. At the time, I was three years old and my little sister, Anne, was almost 18 months now, strapping us into the car, just at around lunchtime, she prepared to set off. She climbed into the driver's seat, she clicked the seatbelt around her, and 
she put the key into the ignition and turned it. Nothing. She turned the key again. The car just stubbornly clicked at her. The engine refused to start. She pumped the accelerator and and tried again. After many, many attempts, it became clear that the car was just not going to start. What was wrong with this thing? It was only a year old. Harry had used it to get into Glasgow quite happily for months with no problems. Eventually, my mum gave up (laughs) and resigned herself to not doing the shopping trip uh, that day and doing it another day. So she unstrapped Anne and I and took us back into the house and continued doing something else that day. It was around mid-afternoon when the reports of the gas explosion started appearing on the radio. My mum listened in horror as the reports described the explosion that had ripped through the row of shops that she had intended to, to visit a few hours earlier. The later inquest discovered that the gas had been leaking for a while and had built up in the basement. Even though the gas board were in attendance, trying to fix the problem, tragically the gas ignited like a bomb going off. 22 lives were claimed that day. In the shops, on the street and in a passing bus. But my mum and my sister and I were not amongst the victims that day. We were safe at home. As my mum listened to the reports on the radio, it struck her how fortunate we all were that evening. My dad, Harry, returned home from work. They spoke about it. They were so relieved that the car had broken down at the right time. A while later, Harry walked out of the house and walked down the drive to explore the problem with the new car. What was wrong with it? He opened the driver's door and sat in the driver's seat. He inserted the key into the ignition and he turned it. The engine roared into life at the first attempt. How strange that our car should refuse to start at the precise time to prevent us from disaster. It was almost as if some unseen influence was preventing us from travelling there that day. Craig Keener has researched miracle accounts that are supported by robust professional evidence and I'm going to replay a few of his accounts in a moment. Honestly though, there are so many of them, I could have filled multiple podcasts by just replaying them. So I'm just picking a few of my favourites. I'd recommend that you go and watch the original video on YouTube and, and hear them because they come. He, he shows them with corroborative documentary evidence, x-rays, etc. If you want to do that, the details are in the show notes. But have a listen um, to this. Lisa Larios had reticulum cell sarcoma of the right pelvic bone. She had cancer of the hip. She was dying of it. It had already metastasized. Her parents hadn't told her that she was dying. But uh, a neighbor persuaded her mom to take her to uh, a healing meeting, even though her mom was kind of reluctant because her daughter didn't even know how sick she really was. She just knew that she couldn't get out of her wheelchair. So she took her to this meeting. And whatever you think of healing meetings, it doesn't really matter because nobody actually had the chance to lay hands on her or pray for her. But while she was at that meeting and other people were being prayed for, she suddenly felt, um, she suddenly felt 
her hip like being healed and Lisa Larias jumped out of her wheelchair and started running around. Now, sometimes under certain conditions, you can say that could be due to adrenaline, but she didn't end up returning to her wheelchair. In fact, she uh, shocked her father when she walked in pushing the wheelchair home afterwards. <clears throat> Testing afterwards showed not only that Lisa's uh, cancer was gone, but that where her cancer had eaten away her bones, the bones had been healed. That's not something that happens on its own, especially not instantly. Barbara, this is a different Barbara. Barbara Comiskey Snyder. Doctors sent her home to die. She had an advanced case of multiple sclerosis. She'd been uh, declining physically after 15 years. At this point, she couldn't breathe without a machine. Her diaphragm didn't work on its own. Also, uh, she, was, she was blind. As she describes it, she was curled up like a pretzel. Her hands were so curled up that every, every few months they would, they would uncurl them just to get the dead skin out. But she'd been sent home from the hospital one last time. They said she won't be coming back here again. Uh, a number of people were praying for her and she heard a voice, my child, rise up and walk. And she wasn't capable of moving. I mean, her muscles didn't work. But she jumped out of the bed, which she shouldn't have been able to do. And the first thing she noticed was that her feet were flat on the ground. Second thing she noticed was her hands weren't curled up. The third thing she noticed was she was seeing these things with her eyes. And she was completely healed. I, I talked with both of her doctors from the time, and both of them confirmed to me, this is a miracle. There's no other explanation for this, except that God did this. Uh, made local news. And that was, that was not a temporary remission. Thank God for remissions. But this was 1981. There's been no recurrence of it. Flint McLaughlin, director of Transforming Business Institute at Cambridge University. In 2004, he prayed for a blind man in northern India with clouded eyes. I assume the man had cataracts. And uh, I, I learned this from Flint, but he also put me in touch with some of the other witnesses who confirmed this and sent me the pictures. This is the field where the man ran in circles praising God. And he was giving his testimony that night. I think this was an orphanage. He was giving his testimony that night. And he began to weep. And they said, why are you weeping? He said, because I've always heard the, the sound of children, but I'd never seen their faces. This one is from Dr. Rex Gardner in his book, Healing Miracles. He also wrote an article that included some of, some of the testimonies in the book are in this article he wrote for the British Medical Journal back in the 1980s. But this one is of a nine-year-old girl. She was deaf without her hearing aid. She's just been tested. It was due to auditory nerve damage, which again, doesn't normally undamage itself. She was praying. She was instantly healed. And they called the audiologist. And the audiologist said, uh, that is impossible. That was auditory nerve damage. It doesn't go away. But they were able to secure another, at least in the US today, you couldn't, you couldn't get another. Uh, your insurance wouldn't cover it for sure for you to go back to the audiologist again, because you've just been tested. But anyway, they were able to take her back. And his, his answer is, I have no explanation for this, but she's completely and totally healed. 
But people say, ah, oh, you never have limbs growing back. Well, that's not really as relevant to the Bible because you don't really have limbs growing back in the Bible either. But you do have some things changing visibly like you know, the, the man with the withered hand growing out. So there are some things like this. Bruce Venata was uh, working under a semi-truck when the axle broke and he was crushed under the back of the truck. It crushed his abdomen and in particular his small abdomen was destroyed. Small abdomen, sorry, small intestine was destroyed. You actually need a small intestine. Um, after several surgeries to remove the damaged parts, there were just 116 centimeters left. Um, and and uh, one part of it, he had just 25 centimeters of, of a part of the small intestine that normally was 350 centimeters. He was slowly starving to death. But a friend of his felt led to fly from New York to Wisconsin and pray for him in person. And the, the guy felt led, he commanded the small intestine to grow in Jesus' name. Bruce felt something like an electric jolt through his body. After that, he was able to eat. And the doctors examined him. The radiologist said that the small intestine was now long enough to be functional. Um, unless you cut him open and unroll the small intestine, you can't actually measure it. So um, that's probably not a good idea since it's working. But, um, but it seemed from what the radiologist, the, the radiologist's estimate was that it had now grown to about 2.4 times the length of what it was when it was damaged and, and removed. Now, the small intestine in an adult can widen, but it can't naturally grow longer. So here we have something that grew back, and we have medical corroboration for it. Dr. Chauncey Crandall, a cardiologist in West Palm Beach, was making his rounds one Saturday in the hospital when he was called to the emergency room where they'd been trying for 40 minutes to restart the heart of Jeff Markin, who had died. Uh, he'd been flatlined for um, what I understand most or all of this time. <clears throat> so Crandall looked over the, the evidence and signed the death certificate, was going back to his rounds when as he was passing through the double doors, he suddenly felt led by God's spirit to go back and pray for the man. So he goes back in there, the nurse is sponging down the, the body for the burial. And Crandall, uh, one of his colleagues came in with him. He, he laid hands on, the, on Jeff Markin's head and said, God, if you want this man to have a second chance to know you, I pray that you'll raise him from the dead. Of course, the nurse is looking at him, glaring at him like, Dr. Crandall, you have lost your mind. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he told me that, uh, like, yeah, anyway. So he turned to his colleagues and shock him with the paddle one more time. And his colleague was like, we all agreed he was dead, but look, if you want, shocks him with the paddle one more time. Immediately, Jeff Markin has a normal heartbeat, which in, after being flatlined, I mean, six minutes with no oxygen, you have irreparable brain damage. So the nurse started screaming, Dr. Crandall told me, Dr. Crandall, Dr. Crandall, what have you done? Like Frankenstein's monster or whatever. <laughs> uh, but two days later, he went in, uh, to see Jeff Markin in the hospital. Uh, now, now, Jeff Markin had been 
not just dead, but very visibly dead. He was white, but his extremities had started turning black from cyanosis. So he had been dead for a while. But when, when he prayed for him, Jeff Markin came back to life. He visited him in the hospital, and Jeff Markin had his second chance to know the Lord. And here is Dr. Crandall participating in Jeff Markin's baptism. For him to have faith to pray for Jeff Markin to be raised from the dead, especially in front of this particular nurse, um, a year or two before that, his own son Chad had died of leukemia, and he had prayed for Chad to be raised. And of course, he'd been praying all along that he'd be healed, and it didn't happen. And he decided, God, I'm going to trust you no matter what. So there's often the backstory to the faith of people uh, that puts things in context. Pretty amazing, right? Now, if you've been listening to this podcast, you'll know that in my own life, from my own personal experience, the miracles that you pray for do not always occur. Sick people who receive prayer do not always get well miraculously. But Keener's evidence and the evidence in the New Testament suggests that sometimes they do. Why? Why did we pray for my loved one? And why didn't they recover? Why did they die instead? Why were we put through all of that suffering when other people survived? Well, maybe it's got something to do with this. The surprising instances of miraculous rescue and healing that have occurred in history give us a hint towards the future that God has got for people beyond the grave. It shows the ultimate future that's waiting for those of us who want it. Thanks so much for listening to the Respond podcast. I've so enjoyed the time we've had together. We've only really scratched the surface though. There is so much more to talk about. So many reasons why, if you aren't yet a Christian believer, I think there are good reasons for you to become one. So we're going to do some more exploration of these in season two. And I hope you'll join me for that. For now, I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review for this podcast. It'll help others find it. But for now, thanks for your time. Let's speak again soon.